Aretha Franklin won the Grammy. In her left hand, she's holding the Grammy. And in her other hand, she's carrying Stuart Weitzman shoes. She thanked everybody, as you're supposed to, right? Your agent, your songwriter, whatever. And then she said, and I also thank Stuart Weitzman for making me these beautiful and so comfortable shoes. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. My wife comes from a long line of entrepreneurs. Her father, Harry, or Skippy as he was known, was in the meat business and the restaurant supply business, actually multiple parts of that industry, and the insurance business over the course of his career, each time as an entrepreneur. And by the way, sometimes he was doing one or more of those things at the same time. He was not educated himself, but he did greatly value education for his daughter, my wife. He was a seat-of-the-pants entrepreneur. No fancy business models for him. And, you know, he did all that he did in a really different era, pre-digital era, pre-modern business era, pre-global competition era, a much simpler time. But the hallmark of the entrepreneur is the ability to create, the knack to take a chance at just the right time. In fact, to not see risk in the same way that most of the rest of us do on a regular basis. Entrepreneurs can be fearless. Every now and then I meet someone who embodies some of the same entrepreneurial DNA as my late father-in-law, and, but he does so in a much more modern way and a much bigger scale and ends up building an incredibly powerful and influential business. Exhibit A, Stuart Weitzman, the founder of the company of the same name, Stuart Weitzman. This is the company that makes incredible shoes with unique designs seen on red carpets that end up attracting tens of thousands of women who want the same, want to feel the same way as the Oscar nominee seems to feel wearing those Stuart Weitzman shoes. As opposed to my own father-in-law who grew up in different socioeconomic circumstances in a very different place, Stuart is very highly educated. And he even intended to go to Wall Street for his career. But through an interesting sequence of events that he does talk about in our conversation, he ended up in the shoe business. Stuart is particularly well known for providing that one-of-a-kind million-dollar shoe to an Oscar nominee to wear the Academy Awards, including a pair of platinum Sandals adorned with 464 diamonds that actress Laura Haring wore to the 2002 ceremony. By the way, she didn't win the Oscar, but it was really through no fault of the shoes. But the outrageous marketing decision, you know, really a stunt when you get right down to it, it led to an explosion of interest in Stuart Weitzman's shoes. And it was really the thing that made him go from kind of niche, interesting business to really, really big business. The thing you notice right away about Stuart Weitzman is that he's a born storyteller, which makes for a particularly great guest for the Sidcast. He visited the tech school where I teach in 2019, but I was traveling and I didn't have a chance to meet him then. But he still talks about his visit and how he was greeted by many students, many of our students who were decked out in Stuart Weitzman boots. And he has a big smile on his face when he recollects on that story. Such is the admiration and reputation that accompanies uh, him in the designer shoe business. And many people have been his customers over the years. I recorded this podcast from my headquarters, my dining room, and Stuart Weitzman was in his home in the New York City area. So let's talk to the man who invented 
and designed and sold the million dollar shoe. This is Sid Finkelstein and we're here at the Sidcast with Stuart Weitzman and it's a real pleasure to talk to you, Stuart. How are you today? I'm doing fine. I'm glad to break the boredom of today speaking with you. <laughs> well, for someone that created a company, multiple companies and ran and was CEO for many, many years and has many, many other interests. I'm not so sure about the boredom. The well, boredom we are part. locked down, you know, so. <laughs> well, the age of Corona, and I will ask you later about that impact on retail and what's going to happen as we try to get it back. But I want to start our conversation by kind of going to the early, early days. And I think what I understood is that you went to, when you were in university, you wanted to go to Wall Street. You wanted to be a banker. Is that right? Uh, investment banker, yeah. Investment, investment banker. I was at the Wharton School. Uh, well, we won't mention that, but... I had to get that plug in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are actually a very nice benefactor to the University <laughs> of Pennsylvania, so I understand that. But you went into the shoe business pretty quickly. How did that happen? Well, I was one of those chance happenings, actually. I was a pretty artistic kid, a good hobby of mine. Mm -hmm. Smart enough to know Picasso was not in my blood. I wasn't going to make a real living out of it. But it was my fun, my fun activity. And I did a lot of actually scenery and painting it from Mask and Wig, the, you know, the uh, drama club at the university. And I had a friend who said to me one day, you know, you ought to sketch some shoes for my father. And I said, why should I, why do you want me to do that? Well, he has, we have this little factory in Brooklyn. He's a wonderful shoemaker, came over from Europe as a young man. His father was in it over there, but he doesn't design, he buys styles outside. So I said, if you give me his catalog, I'll sketch some. And I sketched 20 of them. I lived on Long Island. They lived in Brooklyn, went over one evening during vacation time for dinner. And I brought 20 sketches. And the guy's hands, I could tell they were calloused. He probably ran one or two of the machines in that little factory. I said, my son tells me you draw shoes. I said, well, I really don't, but I did at his suggestion. And I brought them over with me. And I kind of laid them out like you would a deck of cards, you know, just mm -hmm. band them out. And he picked one up and he looked at it and he said, who'd you copy this from? Well, I hadn't. So it didn't take me back. And I just calmly said, gee, I didn't, sir. I looked at your catalog that Larry, his son, brought me, made some sketches I thought might fit to that marketplace. Then he looked at it again and he put it up, you know, like underneath the chandelier light. I think you traced this. <laughs> you know, I didn't, but I didn't really come here to sell you sketches. And I started to scoop them up and he's still holding this one. And he looked at it again and then he just tore it up like that. Wow. We all know that expression. You know, you can hear a pin drop. You never really can hear a pin drop. I'm telling you, Sydney, that evening, you could have heard a pin drop. I didn't. What am I going to say? My friend is sitting there. This guy tearing and throws it at the ball <laughs> on the floor. And then he picked up another one and he looked at it, flipped it over to the blank side and put it on the table, took a pencil out and said, draw that one I threw away. Draw that for me again. Mm. It's a great test, which yeah. I have used throughout my career. And boom, 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 I did. And he said, that's great. I'll take them. And he peeled off 19 $20 bills, gave me $380, 1963. Our tuition, you can imagine, was about, it was $3,900. And there, in about an hour, I just made 10% of that. 
that got your eyes open. Yeah. Also, uh, till to this day, it bothers me. He didn't pay me for the one he tore up. <laughs> and, and I didn't anticipate it. I left it there. He probably pasted it back together and used it. <laughs> but that was exciting. And I put off going to, it was Goldman Sachs I was going to join. I put off. They said, you know, we don't know if your chair will be available. But yeah, a lot of people take some time off before they start. And I went to work for a shoe company. And that was, which is something in itself why I picked the company I went to. But that's how I got into this industry. Yeah. And I never looked back. So I was both a businessman. Anna became the creative director, the CEO and the creative director. That was an advantage. Most fashion companies have two people doing those two jobs. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about that. I mean, we're getting ahead of the story slightly, but it's something I'm really curious about. You know, there's the creative side of so many endeavors and then there's the business side. You see it in almost any field. You can think about it even in film, right? It's an art house movie or, you know, it's a blockbuster where they're generating 300 million in gross revenues. And there's always this kind of yin and yang to the thing. And so it's a boxing match, I will say. It's a boxing match. Yeah. But you were sitting in a seat where you were kind of, you had both those hats on at the same time. Mm -hmm. Business always won, I will tell you. Yeah. It always won. And um, I learned an early lesson that taught me that. We began to spend a lot of money to market advertising, publicity, all that Mm -hmm. goes with it. And one day I had an analysis done of how much it was costing us to bring a new customer into our store, someone who we hadn't sold before. And the marketing we assumed brought her there because many of them would come in with the ad or with, I saw this, or I saw that on this actress, and do you have it? And it came to, I always ask the students, what do you think it came to when I'm in a school? No one ever gets it. $8,000. That was my acquisition cost, as today they call it. And I thought, I am not going to spend that kind of money to get a woman in the first time and have her curse me out because the shoes didn't fit or they wouldn't stay on her feet. I wanted her to bring me her friends, not chase them away. And that made me recognize Nothing was more important than making a business out of this product, making it properly, engineering it properly, designing it beautifully because they still have to take it off the shelf. But the design came after we engineered it and we recognized we had something that would give us a long lasting customer. So the most beautiful shoe in the world, if nobody bought it, wasn't such a good shoe? Yeah, well, the problem is worse than that. If they bought it and it hurts their feet, Uh, you've lost that person forever. What do you think it cost me the second time she came into my store, season later? So it was 8,000 for the first time on average. The second time I would imagine if she was very happy with the shoe, next to nothing. Zero, exactly. That was the business side. Yeah, right. Back to the early days. Did you work with your father also early on? No, my dad only in summers because he passed away when I got out of college. Mm -hmm. He was in business with an older brother that I had. Mm -hmm. And I worked in the summertime as a summer job. You might say in turn, I was more in the shipping room than anywhere else, though. (laughs) Not sure what I learned. And it actually, it didn't intrigue me to go in that business. I didn't want to compete with my father. And my brother, my dad was a fabulous designer. So Wall Street did excite me. And I mean, I remember we had stock clubs, you know, trying to pick winners when we were 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to go to one, a school like Tucker Wharton or Harvard, one of them to get that finesse. Yeah. So your father was in the shoe business, but you, and then you had this thing that happened with, the, I guess, the, the dad of a friend of yours, but then you end up working with him. Is that what happened? No, I, here's another good story. <laughs> uh, you know, as long as you're going to have students watching this, right? You better believe it. Yeah, well, this is something that I hope they pay attention to. 
maybe the most impact I ever had in a class was this. In marketing, the professor was focusing on advertising. And it didn't matter the industry, of course, because he didn't know and we didn't know where we'd end up. And he brought an ad out that had been run only a month before. And it was an ad for Barney's. May they rest in peace, right? It was an ad for Barney's. The high-end department store in New York. Yeah, very high, especially opening their new men's store down on 17th Street. And there was tremendous hype. And this is what the ad looked like. You had four Little League baseball players sitting on a log. And the coach is standing nearby. And the captions go a little bit like this. Coach says to the first kid, have you thought about, Franklin, what you're going to do when you grow up? And he said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He said, I want to be president of the United States just like my cousin. How about you, Clarence? Any ideas? You know, I love law. My father's a lawyer. I want to be a better lawyer than him. I want to be the best lawyer America ever had. And he goes over to the third kid, taps him on the shoulder. Any ideas, babe? what you might do. (laughs) You know, I'm pretty good at this game, right? I'm going to stay in baseball. Maybe I'll be the best home run hitter the game ever had. Well, you've heard about your friends, Barney. What about you? You know, if I'm going to have such successful friends, he said, they're going to need great clothes. So I'm going to open the best store New York ever saw. I kept that ad for about five years. Mm. I never forgot it. It went to memory, as you can tell. Yeah. And I realized I wanted to own my own business. I think Barney's answer is the perfect answer. He was going to make use of the marketplace and build something from it. Of course, that's what they did. And that convinced me that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. But I didn't know what field. The story with the shoes came a little bit after that. Right. right. And it led me to the shoe business. But um, you asked me if I worked for that company. This is why I told you the story. In school... A roommate was taking uh, majoring in physics. He was in the College of Engineering, I think. Majoring in physics, which I didn't know a thing about. I mean, what would, have, what would I know about that? And he said, you know, you ought to read this book on the life of Isaac Newton. I said, physics isn't my thing. And gravity is the, the only gravity I know is when I fall down on the ice rink. And I blame it on gravity, although my girlfriend said it's my two left feet. That's about the most I know. Now he says it's his story of how he thought, how he lived. I think you'll love it. And I read it. And you may know this aphorism, a quote that he's cited for, first time I had ever heard it, read it in the book. If I've gone farther than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. That sort of gave me a chill to read that. And I kept that in mind. And it popped up when I decided to go in the shoe business. I was already a, a little bit of experience in business and designing all my life. But I knew if I could work for someone else who was making a product that hopefully I would make someday as well, I could learn things I certainly would never have gotten in grad school. I could have found out who the best suppliers of footwear would be, all the customers in North America that these people sell. I'd get to know them. I didn't anticipate this, but the biggest asset that came out of working there seven years was leaving there with three fabulous executives who helped me start my company with me. We were running the day we opened the door because of that. And uh, I, in a sense, stood on this giant shoe company's shoulders and learned all that. All the mistakes we made, his cost, not mine. And I often encourage budding entrepreneurs or even professional people, what you will learn working somewhere else will cost you 
too much money to risk on your own right off the bat going out, getting into it out of school. So that's how I ended up working at another shoe company until it, you know, I, I had it and we all left and I started my own business. So what year are we at now when you started your own business? More or less. Uh, 197, uh, I worked there from until 76, I guess around 1980. Okay. And so you were involved or manufacturing in Spain at some point as well. Yeah. Um, I- bought into a factory. First, I started elsewhere and I was getting pushed aside, you know, I'm making shoes for Chanel or Gucci and, and I've given them little orders and paying less money because I didn't have that high priced market. And I'm being pushed around and it's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, my dad did well having his factory. I wanted to own a factory. American shoe industry had ended by then, by the way, there were no factories left. And so I bought into a very good factory. I was led to by people from Bloomingdale and they became my partners at the manufacturing level, not at the company level. Mm -hmm. And actually, their sons, sons run it today, although I'm out of it. But there's, so it lasted three years. So it's continued. That's very interesting. Why did you decide to price and market and brand your shoes? You know, it's been called the mid-market luxury category, which is kind of a funny term, mid-market meaning, you know, $400. They actually, we call it entry point luxury. Entry point luxury. And with a price tag that is, that could be three, $400. Right. Yeah, that was a strategy. So if you don't know much about the industry, you say that's the entry point. Interesting. No, that's the entry point for quality. Luxury category. It's the same thing as owning, not owning the biggest house on the block. Mm -hmm. Your house will be worth more because you're on a block with big houses. Mm -hmm. It's association. I thought if I could get into the same stores that the best footwear was being sold and sell it for less money, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't be creating an image of low price or lower price. I'd be creating the same image because, hey, if Bergdorf Goodman selected my product, put it next door to a time, let's say Bruno Mali or Ferragamo, hmm, wow, I've got that credibility. And that's what I decided to do. And buying the factory helped me do that. I never made the shoe with any less valuable materials ever, but it was almost directly from factory to consumer. There was no agent. There was no middleman. We owned the show from vertically to the end. And our markups didn't need to be anywhere near that. Plus the control of the pricing. You know, when you're in someone else's factory, you're first of all paying an agent to watch your goods being there. But the factory's making their 20% gross over basic costs. All that goes away. And I was able to put the shoes out. You know, even if you save $50 to the marketplace, that's 200 at retail. So it was a strategy. And my problem was getting into those stores and not being bought into the next level of stores or the next department in the department store that would have been, let's say, contemporary market instead of luxury market. That was the real goal that I had to overcome. Right. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about how difficult it was and what you had to do to get into the Bergdorf, get into the Barneys and get into the top places. You have to create a niche, don't you? I mean, I'm the late guy on the block. They're all there 30, 40 years and some newcomers, even 10. But this was my, I'm starting out. And if I'm offering similar product, there's no room for me. There is none. So I had to create a niche. And I studied the industry even before I started. And I thought there are two things that don't seem to me to be being done. One was great looking bridal shoes. And even though that's a small market, Sydney, 
it's not the size of the market I needed the niche in because I needed to get the door open. You perform, of course, your space on shelves expands. Uh, the bridal industry was one, and making custom shoes for celebrities was two, and that was the home run for me because every dress on the red carpet was custom made and one of a kind for that actress. But shoes were bought in shoe stores. No, I shouldn't say bought. They were given away by the manufacturers through their stores. So they were in stock. They were in the marketplace. And more often than not, you would find three, four, five actresses on the red carpet in the same shoe. That is, that is not cool. Happened with a dress, it'd be World War III. But they tolerated it because there wasn't an option. And I think all entrepreneurs do this. I was very prone to taking risks and recognizing the, the great advantages of taking risks that you don't get if you play it too safely. So um, I took a third of the capital I had after getting half this factory that became my production arm at the beginning. I took a third of it and I built a little factory that made one-of-a-kind shoes. Now that's, I want to tell you something, to take a third of your money and make a product that no one's going to pay for. That was not a model I learned at college. <laughs> I don't think you teach that. <laughs> but that's what I did. And hey, you're not going to win the lottery, right, if you don't buy a ticket. What, and that was the, my, what did that people was tell you? you know, the people that are around you? I mean, Well, there was no one to tell me. I mean, my dad had passed away. He wasn't overseeing what I was doing. My wife is more different fields. My employees were hoping we'd build the best business. Mm-hmm. They, I was taking the risk, and I took it. I also felt that if I lost it and it didn't work, I'm okay with two-thirds left to get it started. I, maybe I couldn't advertise as much. Anyway, I did that, and I got lucky. I called a stylist I had met at that company I worked for, and I said to her, this is what I'm doing. I don't think it's available in the marketplace. If you have any clients that have hired you for award ceremonies, think of me. I'll make them custom shoes. And she said, gee, what a coincidence. I just signed on Aretha Franklin, she said. Mm. She's been nominated for the Grammys. This was 1983. Well, I have this picture that appeared all over the world. Aretha Franklin won the Grammy. In her left hand, she's holding the Grammy. I had said to the stylist, they're not going to ask her about her shoes if she happens to win. They're going to ask her about her dress or on the red carpet for the interviews. They're going to ask about her diamonds. Who did her hair? They won't ask about the shoes. They never do. So it would be a real help for me. I'm doing a favor, too, for you. Just maybe she could say, oh, and by the way, Stuart Weitzman made my shoes in the interview. I never saw an interview. I don't think maybe she was interviewed or I was watching the wrong station. But she won. She went up to receive her Grammy. And in her other hand, she's carrying Stuart Weitzman shoes, the ones I made her. You could see the label right in them. But it went past that. She thanked everybody, as you're supposed to, right? Your agent, your songwriter, whatever. And then she said, and I also thank Stuart Weitzman for making me these beautiful and so comfortable shoes. Doesn't get any better than that. 25 million people were watching that. Wow. And I'll tell you, within four weeks, every stylist in Hollywood was calling me to make custom shoes Mm -hmm. for people like Bo Derek and Kim Bassinger. I mean, it was something. It really was. And that started me off. I mean, you got to plant a lot of seeds or you won't grow a lot of corn, right? So that was an absolute home run, as you said. Oh, yeah. And I know that continued for a long time. There's the famous Oscars. Was it 
2002, something like that, the diamond. That was the tipping point of our company. (laughs) Yeah. So can you tell that story about kind of what you made and what happened and how that really exploded into something amazing? Well, you know, it also comes down to the business side, right? As I pointed out with Aretha, they don't ask about the shoes. And we had an issue. We're getting all these great actresses. And I would say 40% of the time, the only people who know they're in our shoes are us. We know it. Our egos. Yeah, big deal. The public, we're trying to, they don't hear about it. So I did say, and this I think is important for a CEO or the leader of the company, founder, whatever kind of size business it might be, to determine the title, not to manage, but to inspire. And I called the whole creative team and the marketing team into a meeting. They said, for the February Academy Awards, we have to get noticed because we're going to get on some feet. Um, We need to come up with an idea, a shoe, something that the interviewers on the red carpet are going to have to ask about the shoe. And one guy said, why don't we make such an expensive shoe? They'll ask about it. That sounded like a great idea. I had friends in that industry, in the jewelry industry. And I remember asking, I said, I need a million dollars worth of diamonds. He said, yeah, my wife doesn't get a million dollars worth of I said, you're going to get plenty of press out. I, will. I told him the story. He said, do it with my son. He goes for things like this. So we worked it out. And I got the diamonds. I made the shoe. They set it in platinum in their jewelry shop in New York. And not only did it get worn, but on the red carpet, Joan Rivers. Remember Joan Rivers? I do, indeed. She was one of the hosts, right? Yeah. And one of the big mouthpieces. <laughs> <laughs> Joan Rivers was interviewing, I think it was Nicole Kidman or Angelina Jolie. And she saw the actress, Laura Lena Herring, the star of Mulholland Drive, David Lynch's film that was nominated Best Director that year, saw her enter the red carpet. And she just stopped the interview, yelled to Laura, Laura, get over here. Everybody wants to see Stuart Weitzman's million dollar sandal. Mm. That was 400 million people. It was in over 300 newspapers, front page either the actual front page or the fashion section front page. And uh, I parlayed that into a worldwide, a global business, which is a whole other story. How does that translate? There's no one else in the world. There's no, not else. There's no one who's buying a million dollar shoe. This is about the brand and this is about celebrity and fame. But help us understand how that translates into somebody, many more people walking in saying, I want that $400 shoe. Oh, they don't ask for that shoe. Stuart Weitzman is now on tables in the best shoe salons in North America, next to brands where women spend 30, 40, 50%, sometimes double more than our average price. Mm -hmm. But when they walk on that floor, it's one of those, if you have to ask, what are you even doing on this floor? And that's true. It's a cliche and mostly time (laughs) cliches are true, you know. So they don't even think about the price, but there we are associated with them. And by now they know our shoes are 500 in the most expensive versus 900, let's say another brand like a Louboutin, for example. And knowing that there's an inclination to look at our shoes first, see if they, they found it. If they don't, they'll go elsewhere because they're on that floor knowing what they're thinking, you know, they're going to spend whatever they spend. And that's what happens. It creates a brand and an image about the brand that it is very high grade and therefore tremendous value because, wow, I can get two pair of these for one pair of someone else's. That's what that's all about. It's really about the image of the company and how I use the celebrities to overcome being 
you know, don't mistake this wrong, but in the world we were in overcome being a low price brand. People will guess who buy it, you know, a nine West or Payless who say you call it a low price, but you have to put it in perspective, right? And there is a certain cachet about owning the higher price product. I was in Saks for the opening of their new salon on the eighth floor. And it was a major event. They gave, they got their own postal zip code. They, they took the whole floor. Made it. You talk about a great PR start. That was it. And I was like other designers on the floor, meeting people and helping the opening happen. And I saw a woman trying on brown satin evening shoe of ours. I was with my assistant and she pointed it out. And then next to my box was a Christian Louboutin box. And the salesman put her in this brown satin Louboutin shoe. And her friends, she said, I think I like the Weitzman better. And her friend said, wouldn't you really rather be telling people you're wearing a $900 Louboutin? It is your daughter's wedding, you know. And she said, mm, you know, I'm as proud to wear Stuart Weisman. And she bought our shoe. Nice. <laughs> so so I, if I were on the sixth floor where the shoes go up to $400 and I'm the highest price, that image wouldn't have been there. And to get on the eighth floor, I used the celebrities. I stood on their shoulder, mm. you know, like Isaac Newton said. They were the giants. Yeah, it's also kind of the thing you said earlier about having kind of the lowest price house in a super on the high block. price neighborhood, right? Yeah. You know, it, this is totally different, but maybe not. Maybe you know Phil Knight from Nike, but you know, how did Nike kind of become such a big shoe company? I mean, totally different type of shoe, but a shoe company. Michael Jordan. A big part was celebrities, right? Michael yeah. Jordan was the big one. There were many others, continue to be many yeah. others, right? So maybe this is more of an abstract question for you, but is there anything fundamentally different about that strategy? I know price point's totally different. I know that the sector is totally different. No. That strategy of finding the superstar and everybody wants to be like Mike. No. And you know something? It's the same strategy for a law firm. You have high profile cases and get them off. That's always on your shingle. Always. I mean, don't we see these ads today about mesothelioma? I got someone, three million, the insurance company said 100,000. True or not? No, that's, it's the same philosophy. Associate yourself with great success in others, and it can rub off on you if you do it well. Now, you have to have product integrity. That's what the business really is. In the end, was it, I don't want to lose Lombardi or someone, you know, you're about fooling some of the people some of the time, and, right. but never all of them all the time, right? So it, does, it won't last. You need the product integrity. And Nike made great product that did the job, the extra spring in their pump construction for the basketball players that every kid in inner city wanted to have a pair, whether they were playing on the sandlot or not. So the product has to be there, just like the lawyer has to get you off too, not just one person. I think it's if you can combine telling your story in an exciting way with as good a product or better that your marketplace offers, how can you miss? Of course, you know, it goes back to the passion and that's what drives you to do that. But it doesn't seem like such a difficult formula. <laughs> I didn't learn it in a textbook, just sort of evolved as I thought this would be a clever thing to do. But I did it many, many times in different areas of my business with people much more renowned than I was at the time. And I gained their, their notoriety. Let me ask you about shoe design. Sure. So you were a shoe designer early on, and I don't know whether you continue to do that later on. I was the head designer from the day I started till the day I sold the company. 
Wow. And including when you had those boots that were such a gigantic hit? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the ones I did, the can-can. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, actually, I want to ask you about shoe design in a little bit more technical detail in a second. But we were talking before we started the podcast But when you came up to visit some of my students at the tech school and the business school at Dartmouth, could you share that story? Because that's a really cool story. Well, well, this was as pleasant. uh, You know, it's a long trip right up here from New York. I actually took advantage of it and skied at Killington to get some of that in. But when I arrived on campus, the driver pulled me up to the hall where the first talk was, not where the class was that I spoke in, but the actual talk of several hundred kids. And on the steps at the top, and you can think of almost uh, the Philadelphia Museum where Rocky ran up, you know, yep. on the step at the top, it looked like three, four dozen coeds. I got out of the car and the professor whose class I was going to be in, Daniela's class, was there. And you know, I guess she gave a signal and these girls lifted their legs and are showing off every one of them in the Stuart Weitzman boot. One of my most famous boots, actually. Some who had them on campus, others who actually bought them that week to be part of this whole activity. I thought, if I could do this every other day, well, that'd be great for business, wouldn't it? <laughs> that was as wonderful a welcoming as I ever got on a college campus. Right. That's a great story. <laughs> so what makes a great shoe designer? What is it? What's the skill set? What's the emotion? What's the mindset? How does this happen? Well, there are two elements that have to be present, and you have to be good at both. Creativity, of course, imagination and taste, the design aspect of the product. But if you also understand its engineering and how that can help its commercialization, then you can be a really great designer, not just a super talented one. And I had on my team a super talented designer. I don't think if I ever made one of his shoes as he drew it for me, you could get your foot in it. But the ideas were wonderful, and I had to use them in a way that we could sell them also. So you need to be able to commercialize it, but make it so exciting in one way or another, either comfort or look, that it's desirable. Very few do that. Most companies have designers and design team and what we call merchandisers. In our industry, the line builder, the person who builds the collection. And by that, they would go to the designers and say, I believe for next season, we're going to have a great run on Western attitude, cowboy boots. I want to see designs on that. Or the Gucci moccasin is so hot now, I want to make some versions of ours that are in moccasin type shoes. Casual is strong. We need a designer sneaker. That person can't design. That's the line builder, the general merchandiser but can inspire. I play both roles again. I did them both, but I did have two people on my design team always that learned our company and were able to, over time, not just be super creative, but think of the engineering to a great extent as well. Mm-hmm. And where they missed it, I was able to fix it. So who are some of your favorite uh, shoe designers? Oh, I'll tell you, people I admire for the way they run their business and build. Manolo Blahnik doesn't like platforms. Now, we designers often make things that we don't like because there's a business side to that. He never made a platform. He so refused. He, he didn't like it, so he wouldn't do it. He thought women looked like they were in club feet. And his customers, he could not bring himself to look like that. I happen to think the right platform makes a woman look great you know, without killing her with a high-pitched heel. It can be a high heel without pitching it up because you're lifting her up. But I admire that when people... Stick to their conviction in that regard. Generally, great designers do. Louboutin does it too. He makes 
high heel, sexy shoes for a great, great part of his collection. And today it's 5% of the business. But he's so good at it that I guess if you own four of that 5%, you have yourself a 500 million or bigger business anyway. So those are two people who do it very, very well. I'll tell you, I don't know who designs Nike or who the head designer, because they must have a team of 20, but they always offer great looking product, super functional, and they market it in a way that these teenage kids have such a desire for it. They won't spend their allowance for three months to be able to buy a pair on eBay because they can't get 200 that were put out as, you know, numbered items. They do it since it's no wonder to me they They've outrun Adidas and put, I don't even know where Reebok is today. They're just that good. Puma, you don't hear about them. But Nike is everywhere. You know, I'm wondering, you know, so this is a product that's made for women. and I, my, I, product, my product. Your product. Yes, of course. And are there designers, shoe designers that are women? Maybe more recently, maybe not when you go back decades ago. And why do you think, I mean, I'm going to guess that there's way more men than women even today that are shoe designers for a product that is such a feminine product. And the question is, why do you think that is? Is it the old story about discrimination or is it something else? Well, that's what it used to be, just inclination. I tell this example in the history of footwear. There's a wonderful exhibition at the Flagler Museum right now in Palm Beach that was at the New York Historical Society of my antique shoe collection that my wife pretty much put together for me over time as gifts. And it uh, worked it into a history of footwear. Every designer was a guy. Everyone, even the most famous American shoe company in fashion, Herbert Levine, was 100% designed by his wife, Beth Levine. Her name was not on the shoe. His name was on the shoe. She lived with that, I think, without issue. She didn't have enough of the woman's liberation movement around her to maybe make her aware of how she was not getting her due in that regard. We in the industry knew, but the public didn't. After her, women began to enter the industry, and it's equal today, I would say. It really is. My designers, one was a guy, one was a gal. Most companies have a mix, but it's a very difficult profession in this regard. It's not made where you live. So most of the women designers are actually in Italy, where most of the product, Italy and Spain, where most of the product is made. But before it went there, you had to travel too far. It was Women were still in the home, mostly. That was, to many, the greatest extent, their role. And now they have more opportunities and ways to get away from the home and run their careers. So it has changed greatly to the benefit of our industry, actually. My executive assistant, who did almost all the things I did, she was great. I could not have run the, actually, we had our, you know, party goodbye, Stewart's retired, he sold, you know, she got up and said, he couldn't have done it without me. And boy, did I you know, voted right on that one because it was true. Would she have ever been able to start and build her own company? Not. She was my age. It didn't happen then, but it does happen today. You're right. So your shoes were in high-end stores, but of course, if we fast forward a few years, quite a few years, there are many Stuart Weitzman stores and have been. Why and how did you make that shift? I didn't make that shift, okay? I recognize that the right store on the right street was a great branding tool. Better than spending 100000 on a Vogue ad. And I opened three stores to do that. One was in the forum shops in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. where so many millions of wealthy people go. It was actually, at that time, maybe still is, the highest volume mall in America. 
I opened another one on Rodeo Drive, Beverly Hills, and one on Madison Avenue, right at home there with Chanel and Prada and Barney's and all that. And that was done with an image in mind. And it was also done to stand on the shoulders of others. When I first looked for a store in New York, the real estate broker who handled the luxury world took me below 55th Street, Third Avenue near Bloomingdale's, Upper East Side, good commercial area. I said, what about, is there nothing on Madison Avenue? She said, there are no shoe stores there. The rent is so expensive, Stuart. Shoe people can't justify it. They don't sell high enough product and there's not enough volume and you don't have clothing. I said, oh, really? There are no shoe people? She said, no, no. I mean, you can say that, okay, Prada sells shoes, but they're also 80% clothing and bags. I said, well, if there are no shoe people, I want a shoe store on Madison Avenue. And I did the exact same thing on Rodeo Drive. I was the first shoe store. Now there are half a dozen in each place, but I didn't plan to make money with it. We ended up being very successful in all three because our volume got high enough to cover it. But it was an image thing. And that's how I built the retail business I had in the USA. We went to Michigan Avenue in Chicago, the Lenox Mall in Atlanta, North Park in Dallas, places where if we didn't do enough business to cover the rent, we were getting enough good publicity. And then they might walk next door to Neiman's and buy our shoes there. Outside of the USA, this was one of the really clever things I have to say that we did. And it was a, another one of those tipping points. We had wonderful customers, just like, you know, I say Bergdorf's, for example. And I asked one of them, you know, you're doing 35% of your volume with our shoes. Why don't you think about opening a store? And these people agreed to do that. And they opened a store first in Zurich, right off the Bonnestrasse. Uh, we gave them the license. Then top top specialty store in, in Hong Kong, Lane Crawford, opened several for me there. We didn't own any of them. We treated them as wholesale customers. Of course, they They got the advantage of our advertising, what a parent company would do for licensees. Never had to invest anything in it in that regard. And they built our business around the world, you know, from Australia to Mexico, Canada. And I made one good deals for them that encouraged them to do it. So I didn't build the retail stores we have today. When Tapestry bought Stuart Weitzman. And Tapestry is the company that was known as Coach uh, yeah, before yeah. very recently. Right? Yeah, because they then bought Kate Spade. They did the right thing. You know, why call the company by one of the brand names? Exactly. So the corporate name. They decided, and I cautioned them, to go 95% retail, 5% wholesale, maybe 90-10. And I remember saying to the CEO, have you analyzed where we make all this? We made 20% net every year. That was an average year. You analyze where we make our money? I said, we don't make it in our stores. We know how to run stores, he said. That's what Coach does. We have 90% stores. He said, it's different in footwear. I don't know who's done it. No, no, we're good at running stores. And they now have 200 and something. This is not a secret because they just announced their quarter. They lost $51 million in Stuart Weitzman in operations for three months, included, of course, the corona issue. But the same period last year, they lost $14 million. We made four times that in a year. So they made that decision. I'm sure they're not happy with it. That CEO has been fired a while back, but they're living with that issue. And now their goal is to try to get back wholesale business, but it's hard to do. So I have two questions based on what you just shared. One is maybe a personal question, which is your name is on the story. Your name is on the brand, but you no longer 
own it, control it. And as you just described, decisions were made that were not the ones you thought were the right ones. How do you feel about that? How do you think about that? It's sort of weird, you know, when every time no one says in an article, Stuart Weitzman shoes, it's always just Stuart Weitzman, right? Like mm -hmm. they don't say Chanel clothing. It's Chanel. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of weird to you know hear that all the time. But from a personal standpoint, I have no attachment that causes me any issue with the way the business might be floundering today. None at all. I had to sell it because my children wanted other careers. There was no one to leave it to. I had to find a home for it. Made that decision twice, actually, and the second time was final. And no, I have no issue with that at all. What does bother me is the factories. We ended up with 11 from that first one as my business grew. They've suffered. I know everyone in there personally. Wherever I had an office, Sydney, maybe people pay attention to this who are listening. There was never a door on my office. I knew everybody and I didn't manage them. Maybe I inspired them. Never micromanaged. I think if you give someone an idea, you'll see how ingenuity takes over. Whereas if you tell them what to do with rules, <laughs> not my style. And I knew them all and they're suffering because as production goes down, they have issues with it. Of course, they're the makers. Right. So that really bothers me from a personal standpoint with my relationships. But from what they've done to the company, that's their problem. That's interesting how you describe that. Very interesting. The second question is about e-commerce. So it's not necessarily just about Stuart Weitzman, obviously, it's about the entire retail sector. But you've been in it for decades, you've built a big company. What do you think? What's going to happen? Is Amazon going to take over the world? <laughs> Is there a defensible, sustainable future for retail stores? What do you think? But I had a great defense, and it worked for us. I felt if we built a brand that the consumer knew and gravitated to, the people we sold could not push us around. And Amazon was... A nobody at the time. But the department stores would run their sales and their friends and family, they call them. And we would get excluded because we insisted and they needed us. So they did it. And then when Amazon came along and they decided to have an area of better grade quality product, and they wanted us to be part of the footwear section, we told them, we'll set the price. We'll tell you what to put on sale. The sales will begin when the department stores begin them, whichever one does it first, and we listed five that we sell, and if one went first, you can join them. And that's all you can do. You want our product. Well, they wanted our product. Obviously, the profit they might make from it is meaningless in the size of their company, right, today or even 10, five years ago. But to have Stuart Weitzman in their shoe salon was like me getting into Bergdorf's shoe salon. I was playing off of my image in that regard. So if you build a brand, and that brand has to be based upon values, you know, not rules, so you can be flexible as things change, that's your protection. I'll tell you another protection, the culture of your company. I think there are two things your competition can't copy. They can copy your style. And there are 200 versions of our famous boot, more than 200 versions of the sandal that revolutionized celebrity world, two of our most famous shoes. But the culture is yours and it inspires your employees. And that's what your business really is without them. Forget it. And then the imagination that you bring into your company. And I try to tell everybody who I talk to, to be imaginative and do things out of the ordinary, but in a fresh and exciting way, is just as easy as following the same straight path to that finish line. Once you begin to think that way, it's hard not to think that way. 
You just have to get it started and do it yourself or find someone in the company who really is good at it. And everyone wants to mimic it, you know. And within that culture, I'm going to just mention one aspect of it. You don't want people, if you can have a choice, that are joining you because they're going to make a great living. That was never our company. They had to be excited. I'm not going to have my passion, right? Because they're working for us. But almost they do, or they feel like they do. That's how I felt when I went to that first company. This is where I want to be because I'm going to learn from them. And if you can have your own culture, build a good brand, and be really imaginative, what other legal protection do you have today against competitors? That'll do it. That's almost the only thing you can do yeah. because they have a different distribution system yes. that is just dominant. Now, you know, we're in the midst of coronavirus and nobody knows when it's going to end, but the amount of online ordering yeah, in every sector there is, is just enormous. And the question is, you know, when we get back to normal, and let's hope that happens soon, but when we get back to normal, what will people do? Will they have become so accustomed to ordering whatever they want? And arrive? I mean, you know, the numbers. The, the online business has been growing probably in two digits or two digits annually. There's been retail growing one or two percent, not citing the, you know, the outstanding examples, just an average. But again, it's the product, you know. You know what our return factor on websites has been half of the average return of footwear. Now everybody Zappo started. Proved everyone. Which Amazon bought those. Yes. How they, you can do shoes even though you can't try them on. Yeah. Uh, 30, 35% you live with. We were like 15, 18. 30, 35% returns. Yeah. Wow. Well, because a woman would say, I think I'm an eight. Send me a seven and a half and eight. And if half the people do that, that's 25%. <laughs> then you got the others who think they bought what they wanted and they didn't. That's another 10%. You're up there at 35%. Got it. But with Stuart Weitzman, they don't order two sizes. Our fit is so consistent. The engineering is so good that they know what they can wear with us. So think about all that investment in inventory is not floating around, you know, in post offices all day long. And it comes again in the back to the product. It's the product. It, you don't maybe think of it, but it permeates to everything and online business as well, of course. And I don't know if I were still running my company and we're doing a half a billion and I'm doing 250 on the web and 250 in stores, I'd just have less stores. My stores would, I no longer want a store in Nashville. I certainly wouldn't need one, three in Boston. I'd have maybe two or one and that sort of thing. So it doesn't matter, I think, where you sell the shoe or whatever product you sell. It's consistency of service, value, and value. I am learning in this coronavirus situation how value is a dominant factor, much more so than we ever had any issue with. We never thought about the price before. But, you know, China has been open for about 10, 11 weeks. They're retail stores. Are you aware of that? Yes. They were the first to open, first to go yeah. down, first to open. I think there's about more than a quarter of Stuart stores are on mainland China. And they're back to 90% of what they did a year ago. This is retail again in China. But there's a caveat. It's all at 40% off. People are, when they put out the products, some products at rate for uh, the season's correct price, they don't get any business. So yes, consumers are smart. They get educated quickly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot of things that are changing and yeah. keep changing. We don't know all of them. You know, I don't know how this hour is flying by. I feel like we can go for another couple of hours. We have tons of things we didn't even get to. Have we been talking for an hour already? It means that you're having fun too, because I am. <laughs> Let me ask, I like to ask my guests on the SIDCast kind of a uh, reflective advice type of question. Let me ask you that as well. If you were to kind of magically go back in time 
to yourself when you were 21 years old, let's just say. Mm -hmm. And given your experience and what you learned, if you were to kind of go sit down next to the 21-year-old Stuart Weitzman and whisper in his ear, you know, Stuart, there's really one thing you want to think about. There's one thing you want to know about life, about business, about whatever you want. What, what advice would you give yourself as a young man? You know, I like to tell stories. I noticed. <laughs> Can I tell it to you in a story? Go for it. E. Digby Boltzell was a famous sociologist. I mean, renowned. And he was one of the pride professors at Penn that they would be proud to have there as people like you are for Dartmouth, let's say. And at the Wharton School, we couldn't understand why a requirement was to take sociology 101. I mean, we're all gung-ho. It's not like today where there's a more well-rounded concept of education. We're there, marketing and insurance and statistics and real estate and finance, all that stuff that figure out what field we want to go to. And we have to take sociology 101. And we got into his class. And I remember he said this. He said, I would bet all of you guys, or most of them, because there were no women in the Wharton School that day, and it was almost a male class, even in sociology, and there were many women in the college. That's where his class was. Uh, probably from the Wharton School. Nods. You're probably wondering why the heck you're taking this course. And uh, again, nods. And then he told this a story. Uh, do you know the story about the jug with the golf balls? He invented that story. Did he? Why don't you share it? It's a great story. So uh, he said, well, I'm going to tell you why. And he called a kid up who was a friend of mine, his desk. And he brought out this jug filled with, I think it was tennis balls. And he gave him uh, five or six additional ones. I want you to shove as many of these in here as you can. And I want you to finish till you're satisfied that this jug is full. I think the kid got two or three more in. Shook his head. I've done it. It's full. He said, okay, sit down. Hey, you, up here. Called him up pulled out from under his desk a jug of sand <laughs> and, you know, poured in finally, you know, yes, it's now full. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, good joke, but it's now full. Sent him down. The third kid came up and had to fill it up with a jug of water. And then he told us, he said, you're at the Wharton school and you want to go out and kill him in the business world. But I want you to think about those tennis balls, like your work. It's going to take up most of your time, fill up most of your space, but think of the sand like your hobbies, charities you get involved in, community activities. Without that sand, the tennis balls aren't all that you need in life. And the water, that's your family and your friends. And you're here in sociology because I'm going to teach you why that's important. And I love the story. I didn't make it part of my life until about eight years later. One daughter was six and the other was four. And I missed some years of their growing up that was fun. And then it became part of my life, and they're my best friends today. Caught, it, caught myself in time. But I would have told that 21-year-old, there's more in life than your career. Great story. Stuart Weitzman, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast, a great guest. And maybe we can get you back again to keep going, because we left a lot of good stories and ideas on the table. <laughs> thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com. Or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. 
If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the Podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.